And the beauty of the cross is that if these people can be forgiven, then we can be forgiven of our sins as well. Think about that. Think about what's going on at this scene in Luke 23. Like, I mean, these are, I mean, these, these people, they, I mean, they're inflicting the worst on Jesus. But if putting the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven too. If betraying and abandoning the Son of God by the disciples and those closest to him can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. If a fickle crowd that turned their back on him can be forgiven, then you and I can be forgiven as well. And here's what Jesus is saying from the cross as he's, as he's uttering his final words. You know what he's saying? Look at the side if you're taking notes. There's nothing you've done that cannot be forgiven. Good to see you again. Uh, great to be back together as a church uh, this week. Uh, we're in week eight of a teaching series just simply called Jesus, uh, where we have been uh, really just looking at the life of Jesus, really asking the questions, you know, are there some things about Jesus' life that we should learn? Like, are there some things about Jesus' life that, that we'd be wise if they were tr- what's true of him is true of us? Are there some things we can learn from Jesus, right? And so I'm just convinced that 2,000 years ago in the Gospels, there was this way of life, this entirely new way of life, of, of living life in the here and now on planet Earth that Jesus in- introduces in the Gospels. It's called the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is a way that is upside down in nature, in values, in ethics, to the dominant ways of a secular culture. It's entirely different. And, and what we see in the Gospels is an invitation from Jesus for you and for me into this way. An invitation from Jesus to you and me into what the Apostle John describes as the abundant life or the, the life that is life. And so what we've been learning in this series so far up until now is that if we're going to be people who live into the way of Jesus, meaning that we experience life in the here and now differently than, than the way the average person experiences life, if we live life maybe the way, if we live and experience life the way Jesus intends for us to, then it's going to require that we live into the way of Jesus by living into three real major concepts, three big ideas. And just to sort of recap, um, number one is to be with Jesus. Uh, we, we've, we spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be with Jesus, but, but uh, this is like, you know, where, where you actually know him, you know, that, that we have relationship with Jesus. Number two is to become like Jesus. This is where we take on his likeness, where, you know, in, in uh, situations and circumstances of life, you and I show up like Jesus would. We respond and we act. We begin to take on his character. We begin to, to respond to things in this world, things in our lives the way Jesus would. We become like Jesus. And then, finally, we want to be people who start to do the kinds of things that Jesus did in this world. And, and, uh, and so we are in week eight. We're right there in the middle. We're still looking at what it means to become like Jesus. And I really feel like, you know, a lot, a lot of what I, I, I came here today to tell you is that I, I think it's incredibly important for us as Christians to have a distinct counterculture. It's incredibly important for us as Christians to have a distinct counterculture where we offer an alternative to everything that has just become normal. Where we offer an alternative to you know, the anger and hostility and decline that we see around us everywhere, where we offer an alternative to the hopelessness and the panic that it permeates the globe right now as I'm speaking. Because as followers of Jesus, hear me out, like we hold on to a vision that says, what I possess and carry is far greater than, than what the world has to offer. Like, like that, that's who we are. Like, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We hold on to this vision 
that says all that I carry, all that I possess is greater than what the world has to offer. And then we just want to share, we want to share this hope with, with others. We want to share this hope that we have with, with the world around us. But, but it's, not, it's not easy, right? And how many of y'all know that like America is a culture right now of anger, relational divide, outrage, and bitterness? Does this feel true to you? Of course it does. We live at a time where people are more divided than maybe any other time I can remember in my life. And it just, it's just in conflict with some things we even learned last week out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the apostle Paul writes that, that love keeps no record of wrong. But how many of y'all know that like bitterness and offense keeps detailed records? Right? We're, just, we're just living at a time where the records of offense are incredibly detailed. Love has, has, has really been redefined in many ways. Love has become something that is based on performance. So it's like this. It's like, I'll love you when. I'll love you as long as you never. I'll love you as long as you do and you fill in the blank. Or I'll forgive you once you jump through whatever hoop you know, I, I deem necessary. Or I'll forgive you as long as you never, ever do that again. I'll forgive you and it all comes with conditions. And so this is the way most people act. It's an eye for an eye. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? So it's like this idea that I'll give you, I'll give you one shot. I'll give you, I'll give you one pass. I'll give you one opportunity. But if you ever do that again, if you ever cross me again, if you, ever, if you ever hurt me again, if you ever inflict any kind of emotional damage to me again, like I'm done, it's over. And this is how the dominant culture works by and large. And the reason why I just give you all that is because if you're taking notes, I really want you to understand this thought that the culture of my life should be different than the culture of the world. So what, what, is, what is normal, what is, what, what is common in, in culture, I have to ask myself, like, like should that be common in me as well. So what does the culture of the world look like? Time Magazine published a 2016 online article from Jeffrey Kluger entitled, America's Anger is Out of Control. All right, this, is, this is six years ago. America's anger is out of control. Kluger goes on in this article, it's, an, it's a fascinating article, he, he writes this, he says, anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick, it's binary, it's delicious, and more and more, we're gorging on it. In the article, Kluger says that if you were to Google the word outrage, you would find some pretty interesting results. He says you'd find the expected Google hit for outraged activists or outraged conservatives. He says, but you would also find hits for things like outraged vegans, outraged gardeners, outraged fishermen, and even outraged knitters. The article, he points out that apparently the knitters were outraged for not being recognized by the Olympic Committee. True story, like true story. There are certain types of outrage that are legitimate. Let's just, let's just, let's just be honest. There are, there, is, there are certain types of outrage that are legitimate. Things we see happening in the world. Things, things where, where we see evil at work or evil advancing and we're just outraged by it. We're like, that is not okay. There's times where there's like a, like, a, like a, 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 it's legitimate for us to have a, a, like a righteous anger inside of us. But I don't know, man, it just seems like, there's, like, like there seems to be something growing in us more and more as a society where we, where we enjoy watching our opponents become destroyed. 
The entire cancel culture is really built on this value. We enjoy watching those we hate become destroyed. It's why, it's why if, you're, if, if you're on the political right and maybe you voted for President Trump, like you were so angry as those of, who were his opponents gloated and watched him become you know, destroyed, essentially, or they tried really hard to, uh, to take him down. It's why, it's why those of you now, you know, maybe who are on the political right are, are maybe enjoying watching President Biden struggle in some ways. We're, we're living at a time where, where as a society, we just enjoy watching our opponents become destroyed. Tim Creeder, he's a writer for The Atlantic. He talks about in this article that he, he actually feels as a writer an expectation to be professionally furious in order to be able to write and do his job effectively. That when he sits down to write, when he sits in front of his computer, he feels that there's this expectation upon him to be professionally furious every time. He writes this, he says, he says, so many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling one right and two wronged, but outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagree, as disagreeable, but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain and nausea, rather than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish. So much of this is in our culture, wouldn't you agree? Feeling right and feeling wronged all at the exact same time. You see, we, just, we live in a society that is postmodern. We, we, we live in a society that's suspicious of meta-narratives. We live in a society that, like Charles Taylor talks about in his book, A Secular Age, you know, the age of disenchantment, where basically as a culture, we, we, we no longer value anything spiritual. And so when you, when you live in a, in a culture, in a moment that lacks any kind of spiritual or, or warfare worldview, which we, which we teach here, right? You've heard that language. When you live in a society that lacks any kind of warfare, spiritual uh, worldview, where there's a removal of a devil and his demons, then the result is usually in us demonizing the people we disagree with in culture. That's usually what happens. There's no, there's no, there's no like appropriate place to target the outrage and the anger, and so we demonize people who we should have never demonized in the first place. Everything is built on this idea of resentment and anger and outrage. And, uh, and so let, let, me just, let me just give you this thought. Like peace, which we all want, a sense of getting along and respecting one another is what we want in, in culture and society. Community, a sense of true community is what we want. But, but community, community is not the absence of conflict. So sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we think that as long as we can like get rid of the conflict, once we can get like the majority thinking like us, then there's no more conflict. Once, once just about everybody, that's idealistic, right? If we can get everybody to think a certain way, there's no more conflict. Community and peace is, is not the absence of conflict. It's the, it's the presence of a reconciling spirit. It's the presence of a reconciling spirit. You see, as Christians, like, we are called by God. Like, you know, Paul writes about this, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, not holding the world's sins against them. 
That there, there, is, there is this spirit that we carry in us, this reconciling spirit, that when the world sees this, it, it, it compels them to want what we have. True peace, community, it's not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of a reconciling spirit. When the people of God show up with this, with this belief that like, like man, like, like what I see in you is, 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 uh, is better than maybe what you, what you see in you. Or I refuse to define you based on your worst day. I refuse to define you based on like your worst choice or your worst moment. It's the presence of a reconciling spirit. If you take a note this morning, forgiveness is one of the most countercultural practices of Jesus. Forgiveness is one of the most countercultural practices of Jesus. And again, make no mistake, we're trying to become like him. By definition, forgiveness is an unmerited gift. It is given to someone who does not deserve it. You ever had somebody in your life that you used to struggle to forgive? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah? Can I see some, nod- some heads nodding at least? Like, make sure, make sure I'm speaking to the right audience this morning. Like, have you ever had people in your life you've struggled to forgive? Well, wh- why is that? Usually the reason why you struggle to forgive them is because they don't deserve it. Well, that's the whole point, right? Forgiveness is unmerited. It's something that we give to someone who does not deserve it. And I just want to tell you that if we're going to take on the likeness of Jesus, we're going to have to also take on the forgiveness of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is a way of forgiveness. The way of Jesus is a way of forgiveness. Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be this morning. In Luke 23, Jesus is speaking from the cross. Did you know that you can learn an awful lot about someone from the final words they speak out of their mouth? Have you ever been next to somebody on their deathbed and had the chance to hear the last words coming out of their mouth? At the end, you know, with only moments left, how many of y'all know, like, those words are precious? Like, you don't just, like, use any old words. You don't just, like, use your last words with, with thing, you know, to say things that, that are meaningless. Like, those words are, are chosen. Those words are, are carefully picked. I remember this last fall when my grandpa passed away. My dad was with him at the end and dad told me that the last words and thoughts that my grandpa had towards the end of his life they were centered around the power of God to save and to transform people's lives grandpa had been a pastor for over 40 years and he had seen God do incredible things in people's lives I mean him and grandma had given their lives to this and and they'd seen like miracle after miracle transformation the power of God to save and at the end all grandpa wanted to do was just like retell the stories of this person and that person do you remember when God did this in their life? Do you remember when God did that in their life? How many of y'all know like you can tell an awful lot about somebody based on the, the last words that come out of their mouth? The amazing thing about the scriptures is that we actually have these words of Jesus. We actually have his last words. They're recorded for us in the gospels, the final words of Jesus, the words that he chose carefully to have reverberate throughout all of human history. We have these words, and these words tell us an awful lot about who Jesus is. So the context in Luke 23 is where I want to go this morning. starts in verse 32. If you want to just follow along with me, you can on the screen. And, and it just says this. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now to catch you up 
to the point in this story where we're at right here in Luke chapter 23, the disciples have left him, okay? He's been betrayed in the garden, and his closest friends and followers, they are nowhere to be found. Jesus' closest friends, those who have walked with him for years, they are gone. The ones he's poured his life into for three and a half years, they have abandoned him. He's been brought to a corrupt trial. The charges and false witnesses have stood against him and accused him. They've lied about him. Jesus has been flogged and mocked, brutally beaten by the Roman authorities. He's been insulted and slandered by the crowds of people who have gathered around him. He's been rejected by his very own people, the ones that he came to save in the first place. He's been led out of the city of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. Ultimately, he's been crucified. So Luke chapter 23, the context is that Jesus has been betrayed, he has been abandoned, he has been sentenced, and he is in the process of being executed as he hangs on the cross. I love the words from Audrey Assad in this lyric where she says, that she says, God on a cross, who would have thought it? This looks nothing like Eden. God on a cross, who would have thought it? This looks nothing like like Eden. This doesn't look anything like the garden. This doesn't look anything like God walking in the cool of day in relationship with Adam and Eve, walking in perfect relationship with his creation. This is God on a cross. Who would have thought this would ever happen? A New Testament commentary says this. It says, the most extreme word in the English language to describe pain is the word excruciating, which comes from the Latin word excruciatus, which meaning out of the cross out of the cross. So this is what Jesus is going through in this moment. He's been betrayed. He's been abandoned. Now he's been crucified on a hill outside of the city, and he's experiencing the most horrific pain that you can, you can possibly imagine. And in verse 35, as Jesus is experiencing this kind of pain, it just, it just says this. It says, it says, the people stood watching. He's suffering on the cross, on this tree, that has been made for sinners, and he is suffering pain like we can't imagine. And 35 says the people stood watching. Who are these people who are enjoying watching Jesus crucified? Who are these people? Well, the truth is they're just common people. Most of them are just common people. They're the same people who a few days earlier were yelling Hosanna at the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And now on this day, they're yelling for Jesus to be crucified. These people at best are fickle. Many of them have heard Jesus teach. Many of them have, have probably you know, been healed by Jesus, or some of them at least. Some of them have probably even experienced a deliverance from Jesus. Crowds are always fickle. They're always fickle. They're always... They're always just unified, though, in whatever it is that they're going to be, uh, whatever they're going to be passionate about. In a week earlier, they're passionate about Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're unified in their worship of Jesus on Palm Sunday. A week later, they're unified in their rejection of Jesus, wanting him to be crucified. So the people stood watching. The second half of 35 says, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, save others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. So here we have the Jewish rulers at the crucifixion scene. These are the Sanhedrin. These are the Pharisees. This is like the, the chief priest, Caiaphas. These are the ones at the scene. They're watching the crucifixion of Jesus. And these, these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders, they have compromised their faith and they have come together to essentially say, Jesus, you will not rule us. This is essentially what's going on. This is what's happened through the night as they've arrested him, as, as they've brought him to like a fake trial where there, was, like, there were no char- legitimate charges really brought against him. They, they have banded together. They've come together to essentially say, Jesus, you will not be our leader. You will not be our ruler. It's always amazing to me in the crucifixion story of Jesus when I see the reluctance and resistance from the Roman leaders to kill Jesus. The Roman leaders, you know, like they see Jesus as a problem to be removed. They, they, they see Jesus maybe as a political threat, as a disturbance to the peace, as a challenge to be responded to in that given moment. But amazingly, it is the Jewish rulers and not the Roman leaders who are pushing Pilate to sanction the crucifixion of Jesus. Like, it's not, it's not the Romans who are like, they're trying to like figure out a way to let Jesus off. Like, I don't really know that it's all that bad. But it's the Jewish leaders who are like, no, 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 you've got to crucify him. They're pushing Pilate to sanction the crucifixion. It says in 35b, it says, the rulers even sneered at him. To sneer means to turn up one's nose in disdain. To turn up one's nose in disdain. So from the Torah, you were Jewish, that's, where you, got your, that's what you, where you got your teachings, right? So the Torah, there is a theology these Jewish leaders would have believed out of Deuteronomy 21 that anyone hanging on a tree was cursed by God. So they're sneering at Jesus. What a failure. You claim to be the Messiah and you are experiencing the curse of God as you hang on the cross, as you hang on this tree. And what the religious leaders, what the Jewish leaders did not understand in this moment is that Jesus was, being, was actually being cursed by God. Like it actually was happening. He was being cursed by God on their behalf. They were just unaware of what was happening in that moment. They were, under, they were unaware that he was, he was taking their sin to the cross. He was being cursed on their behalf. Verse 36 says the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said if you are the king of the jews save yourselves so the roman soldiers are mocking jesus they put a crown of thorns on his head they've tried to get him to to to, to utter the words to to admit that he's the king of the jews complete and total mockery putting this crown on his head they put a robe on jesus trying to provoke him again to tell them that he's the king of the jews then they crucify him between two actual criminals and they begin to gamble for his clothes you know, remember the story. They even put a sign above Jesus on the cross that says in verse 38, it says this, it says, there was a written notice above him which read this, this is the king of the Jews. It's a complete and total mockery of Jesus. It's a complete and total mockery of Jesus' failed efforts to be king. And so here is Jesus, the son of God naked on a cross being surrounded by friends who have abandoned him, crowds who are fickle and have turned on him, religious leaders who oppose him, and the soldiers who are mocking him and crucifying him. This is the scene of Luke 23. 
What a scene, what a moment in history, right? The God of all creation on a cross being rejected and crucified by his own creation. John's gospel was right in John chapter 1, verse 10, when it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is Luke 23. This is what we see going on here. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So the big question is, like, how does Jesus respond to this? Because, man, if this was me, if this was you, I think we'd respond maybe only one way. We see in verse 34 the response of Jesus, and it's incredible. It says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The response of Jesus to being abandoned by his friends, to be, being abandoned by those who are closest to him, those he's poured his life into, the response from Jesus to, to enduring like, like a, just a, a fake trial, being accused and lied about, the response of Jesus to the religious leaders who are scheming to crucify him and the Roman soldiers who have nailed him to a cross is this in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Listen to me. Everything I think I know about forgiveness goes out the window when I read this story. Everything I think I know about forgiveness goes out the window when I read this story. Because there's, there's, there's a lot of things like I, I've picked up over the years on forgiveness. There's a lot of belief over the years on forgiveness that I've picked up that, well, you know, it's like I'll forgive them, I'll forgive them, but I want to make sure they at least know and, and that they at least like learn a lesson. Like, you know, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Like, you know, like, I'll forgive you, but did you really learn a lesson? I'll forgive you once I know you've learned a lesson so that you don't ever do it again. Like, this is how, this is how we sort of hedge, you know, to make sure we don't get hurt again by people. And so, like, this, I think, I think we've all picked up things in, in regards to forgiveness over the years. We were just like, well, you know, like, I don't know. They, they, don't, seem very, they don't seem very apologetic. They, they, don't, they don't seem like they, they really care. So, like, why would I, why would I forgive somebody who, who did that? Or like, I, like, they've done that to me 5, 10, 15, 20 times. Like, I'm not going to stop forgiving them at this point. Or, or, you know, you don't know, Pastor Jordan, just how deep the pain runs. You don't know how hard, like, my, my life is. You don't know exactly what's gone on to me. Listen, I get it. I, man, I've gone through some of the most horrific stuff. Like, I mean, I get it. I understand people hurting you and people doing things against you. I, I've been that guy who's done things to people. And all I'm trying to say is that everything I think I know about forgiveness goes out the window when I read this story. Everything I think I know goes out the window. The word Jesus uses for forgive in the, in, in the Greek, is used in, the, in, in Greek. It's in, the Greek tense means that it's used repeatedly. So the, so the way Jesus is, is doing this, it's something he's saying over and over again. He doesn't just say it one time and gives up his body and dies. This is something where Jesus is repeating from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to look at this thought. As these people are putting Jesus to death, he is praying for them. As these people are putting Jesus to death, he is praying for them, asking for God's mercy and forgiveness to be poured out on them. It's so extraordinary because earlier in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, 
Jesus says, you know, you got to love your enemies. He says, you got to pray for those who persecute you and do good to them. Look at this in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's, that's, an, that's interesting. Who says that? Luke 6, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, here is Jesus being tested. Jesus is on the cross and he's being tested. Is this just a theory or a theology or do you actually mean what you said? Do you actually mean what you preached, you know, all those, all those years ago when, when you told us to love our enemies? Like it, Jesus is being put to the test right here on the cross. And what's happening here on, on the cross as he's being crucified is we see Jesus aligning his heart with his father. We see Jesus aligning his heart with a benevolent God. We see Jesus aligning his heart with a benevolent father whose will is that none should perish but that all would come to repentance, including these very people who are surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus on that day 2,000 years ago. 1 Peter 2 says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. There's that word again, right? He's taking on the curse of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the son of God, right, everybody? This is the son of God, and he is not retaliating, but instead he is praying for those who are cru crucifying him. His actual enemy is killing him. And yet he prays for them and he asks for his father to forgive them as well. If you're taking notes this morning, the forgiveness of the cross gives us insight into the heart of God and the lengths at which he was willing to go to deliver humanity from the curse of death. It gives us insight into the heart of God. Like, who is this God? What is he really like? What's his personality? Like, who is he really, and the lengths at which he was willing to go to deliver humanity from the curse of death. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to look at this, this thought with me. The forgiveness of the cross, it's a ransom. The forgiveness of the cross is a ransom, meaning that it's a payment for our sin. It's a payment for our sin. It's a ransom. It is, it is a substitution. The forgiveness from the cross is a substitution, meaning Jesus is offering himself in our place as our substitute. Like, like meaning that, that like we deserve the cross. Those who were watching him that day deserved the cross. Jesus is our substitute. The, forg the forgiveness of the cross is a propitiation, meaning that God's wrath towards, towards sin is satisfied in this, in this sacrifice. He's our propitiation. The forgiveness of the cross is a victory, like this is Jesus being lifted up and triumphing over sin, Satan, 
death and hell. This is, there's a victory happening here. The forgiveness of the cross is a sacrifice, meaning that there will, there will not be any more sacrifices needed after this one sacrifice. This is the last one. The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood poured out on the cross, it was sufficient. It was final. It was all that was needed. And then the forgiveness of the cross is a, is a foundation. It's a foundation of a new humanity. Because now through his blood shed on the cross, the, name, the things that normally keep people apart, the things that normally keep human beings separated, tribalism and different aspects of society, are now reconciled as Jesus builds a new humanity. They're all, they're all reconciled in him and in his blood and in his sacrifice as Jesus builds a new humanity. There's, no, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. That, this is the new humanity that Jesus builds through his bloodshed on the cross. The forgiveness of the, of the cross through Jesus' death is complete because of his sacrifice. And the beauty of the cross is that if these people can be forgiven, then we can be forgiven of our sins as well. Think about that. Think about what's going on at this scene in Luke 23. Like, I mean, these, are, I mean, these, these people, they, I mean, they're inflicting the worst on Jesus. But if putting the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven too. If betraying and abandoning the Son of God by the disciples and those closest to him can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. If a fickle crowd that turned their back on him can be forgiven, then you and I can be forgiven as well. And here's what Jesus is saying from the cross as he's, as he's uttering his final words. You know what he's saying? Look at the side if you're taking notes. There's nothing you've done that cannot be forgiven. There's nothing you've done that God cannot forgive. That's what Jesus is saying. As he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's saying, look, there is nothing you could do and it could be the worst that God cannot forgive. And this is why we're called to bring our sins to the cross. This is why we are called to run to the cross. Marshall Hoffman says this, says the door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. The door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. As Jesus forgives, as he takes his final breath, as his blood is shed for the forgiveness and the remission of sin, the door to the kingdom of God is opened. Who is this God? There's some things I want us to pull out of this. There's some things I want us to learn as I start kind of winding us down. There's just some important takeaways. If we're gonna be people who become like Jesus, you see, Jesus' desire is for his followers to embody this very same forgiveness and enemy love that hung on the cross 2,000 years ago. This is his desire. We're like, a lot of times we think, well, man, that was Jesus. I can't, I, you know, I can't be like Jesus. Like, that's actually not in the Bible. We think, well, that, you know, Jesus did. Of course he did that. When we think about, like, the apostles and the early followers of Jesus. We think, well, man, of course they acted like that. That's, that's just who they were. They had some sort of, you know, ability The desire of Jesus is for his followers to embody the same type of forgiveness and enemy love that hung on the cross 2,000 years ago. Did you know that enemy love was the distinctive feature of the Christians in the first 300 years of, the church, of church history? Did you know that? 
It was the distinctive feature of the first 300 years of church history. You know, the, the John 3.16 of the first 300 years of church history, you know, like, we know that verse. It's like the most famous verse. Like, globally, Christian and non-Christians know that verse. You know, in the first 300 years of the history of the church, the John 3.16 for them was love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then as these followers of Jesus were put into places of persecution and torment, they would forgive the people doing to this to them in that moment. They would just forgive them. And the ways that Christians died was so effective that at times even unbelieving onlookers from the crowds would leave the stands and join the Christians as they were put to death. Like it was such a testimony. Like they were just, people were just blown away. They're watching these Christians be put to death and tears are running down their face because they're thinking like, who loves like this? Who lives like this? Who, who forgives people like this as they're getting ready you know, to set them on fire and put them to death? They were just so compelled by their love. And I just want to tell you today that forgiveness is, in, is, is uh, integral in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Forgiveness is integral in our apprenticeship to Jesus. We live in a world polluted by sin and shame and relationships in this broken world that are often marked by disappointment, loss, and pain. But the call of God throughout the scriptures is to release those who sin against us from our personal right to collect on the debt of their offense. This is the call of God throughout all of scripture. This is the call of God through Jesus on the cross is to release those who sin against us from our personal right to collect on the debt of their offense. And we see this embodied best in the person of Jesus who in the face of sin chose not to look the other way nor pay the person back but to deal with the sins committed against him in the most compelling way imaginable and it was just, just by forgiving them. By forgiving them. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5. He says, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Like this, this is like, this is what it means to follow the way of Jesus. Be imitators of God. We're looking to become like Jesus. We are looking to become imitators of God. Like that's, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is, is our example. And just as Christ loved us, so we too love. Just as Christ gave himself up, so do we as well. Just as Christ forgave, so do we forgive as well. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 to the church in Ephesus, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. I love that verse because it really tells you that you can be angry and not sin. I don't know, I don't know if I've ever done that. Because in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I feel like we should like stop for 30 seconds in between each verse in this passage like, and just take it in. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, the tension with forgiveness is that it comes at a great cost. The issue with forgiveness is that it just, it just, it's very costly to the person who has been wronged. Like if you've been wronged, if you've been sinned against, if somebody has hurt you, you know that forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness is great. You just know this. And you, in order to forgive that person, you have to bear the cost of, of whatever they did, however they wronged you. Forgiveness is very costly. So an example is, you know, somebody steals from you. You have to go replace what's been stolen. Like, you can forgive them all you want, but there's still a price. There's still a cost associated to forgiving them. You, you can forgive them all you want, but you don't just snap your fingers, forgive, and everything's okay. Like, there's still a deficit. There's still something that needs to be replaced, and it's up to you now because you've, you've forgiven. It's up to you now to go replace the thing that's been stolen. You can forgive the thief, but it's going to cost you to replace it. And the thought there is just this, is that at great cost to himself, God was able to forgive us. You see, see God, God, God forgives the sin of the world at great personal cost to himself. God doesn't just snap his fingers and make everything okay. Like at personal cost, at great cost. God is able to forgive us. The cost of forgiveness is great, but the outcome in the lives of those who forgive is greater still. And through the process of forgiving and being forgiven, I, I really believe that we can experience freedom. That's how you experience freedom. It's, it's one of the, the, the number one ways you experience freedom is just through forgiveness. Receiving the forgiveness of Jesus, but also releasing forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. This is how you experience wholeness and intimacy with God and intimacy with others, all of which is part of life as Jesus intended in the here and now. And so when you look at the fracturing of our society today, what is it that's going to help us get over our differences and over our hatred? Like, what is it that's going to solve the problem? What tools can we use? Social media certainly isn't doing it. How's politics helping us? Who do we look to in this moment? Who do we look to in this cultural moment? What's the concept that can heal the bleeding wounds of our society? And it's only through costly forgiveness. It's only through costly forgiveness. It's through loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, laying down our right to be right. As I get ready to close, I just, I just had a couple more thoughts for you. and I want to just encourage you with this one right here. And it's just this thought that the one who is owed a debt 
always has the authority to cancel that debt. You see, you see, when it comes to forgiveness, oftentimes we just we feel like, man, I I ha- like I have to hold on to this unforgiveness. Like I like like they've they've wronged me so greatly that if I just let this go, they're gonna think it's okay to continue to do that to me. Again, I, w- I want you to know, like you're not you're not powerless. You're full of power to release the debt. You're you're, you're full of power to cancel the debt that is owed to you. I mean, it's it's like like, uh, Luke chapter 7. Jesus tells this parable. He says, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Like this... Like, you are going to have moments and seasons and times in your life where the person who's wronged you is, is they're, they're going to be at a point in their life where they don't have the ability to pay back the debt. Like, whether it's, it's through, like, their own emotional immaturity or their own challenges in their life, they're never going to find themselves getting to a season and a place where they're willing to come to you and apologize and ask for forgiveness. And that's why you have to understand that whoever's owed a debt has the authority to cancel the debt. Just let them go. Just let them go. It's, it's, like, it's like with your bank or with your, your, your mortgage or whatever debts you have. You know that the bank has the authority to cancel that debt if they chose to. It's highly unlikely. But you know that the, the bank has the authority. If they decided, they could cancel whatever debt. Well, you're the, you're the banker, you know? You have the authority to cancel whatever debt is owed to you. And I just wonder, you know, what keeps us from canceling the debts? What keeps, keeps us from canceling the debts? You know, you know, for me, a lot in my life, a lot of what's kept me back has been just because the pain was so great, the offense was so great, that it just felt so good to hold people in jail as long as I possibly could. As long as I possibly could. Maybe you've heard, heard it like this. I love, I love this thought. I think my brother says this, but I don't know that he originated it, but you know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. Forgiveness is an integral part to apprenticeship towards Jesus, to becoming like him, to taking on his likeness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've shown me. And out of, out of my own awareness of everything you suffered and went through due to my own sin, who am I to hang on to unforgiveness? Myself. I love this thought from C.S. Lewis. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Would you stand with me this morning? The church is at its best when it takes on Jesus' spirit as it is wronged, as it is offended. The church is at its best when it takes on the spirit of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, as it's wronged taking the message of forgiveness and extending it to the world around us. Would you just bow your heads with me here for a moment as we get ready to close in prayer? And I just want to ask you a couple simple questions. 
Do you have an enemy? Is there anywhere in your life where you haven't fully released God's forgiveness to someone else? You're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, today is the day. Like, I, I'm tired of letting unforgiveness in my heart keep me from being like Jesus and keep me from moving forward in this world. And you just want, you just want to be just set free from all the unforgiveness that's just lived and prolonged inside of you. And today's the day you're just gonna, you wanna lay it down. Can I just see your hand in here today? There's unforgiveness towards somebody. You wanna just release it and let it go. Father, right now, I just thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your your goodness to come to our rescue and to forgive the inexcusable in us. And so if that's you today and you just, you prayed that prayer, I want you just to take your hands and just hold them right before you, like the palm of your hands is right in front of you. Every head bowed, nobody's watching, but I want you just to, just, just to imagine you're taking that relationship, you're taking that offense and you're just holding it right there in the palm of your hands right in front of you. And as you're ready, I just want you to, to turn your hands over. Palms down. And I want you just to release and let go and forgive. I'm not holding on anymore, God. I'm releasing. I'm letting go. I refuse to hold on to offense. Come and cleanse me. Come and make me new. Thank you for your blood shed on the cross. Thank you that I was in the crowd. Thank you, God, that, that I, was, I was one of the religious leaders, that I was, I was one of the soldiers and, and yet you still looked at me and you said, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. And so as we receive your forgiveness today, oh God, we also release your forgiveness out into other people. Make us more like you. Change us and shape us into who you are so that when life comes at us, God, we could respond with, with a, uh, a distinct counterculture. We can respond the way Jesus would, which is far different than how most people tend to respond to things like anger and bitterness and hostility. Give us your heart. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.